Proverbs chapter 6. We live in a world that is filled with warning signs and warning labels. Some seem a bit more like information that we can't really do anything about rather than a a true warning. Uh, The California law that passed where every, like, I don't know, 800 chemicals may cause cancer that's on everything that is manufactured or shipped or cooked or otherwise seems like just a catch-all. It's no longer really a warning. It's just information. I was thinking of this recently. I was driving through Colorado and the signs that say danger falling rocks when you're on I-70. I inevitably look up every time I see the sign. I find myself kind of looking. But what, I mean, I can't do anything about that. It's a warning of sorts, I guess, just so that you wouldn't be surprised if your car was smashed. But there's nothing, you're not going to stop and get off the highway when you see that sign. It's just informational. Others are more serious, but the danger is not immediate. Most famously there would be cigarette warning labels. Uh, I have a grandmother who died of lung cancer after over 40 years of smoking. The labels were there for at least part of that time. I know she started prior to the labels, not that it would have made much difference. But the label is serious, it is a serious warning, but the consequences were delayed. The most important warning labels are those that warn of certain immediate danger. A poison label, for example. A road closure sign, a sign that says bridge out. Those are signs that if you ignore them, certain tragedy will result, perhaps the loss of life. Tonight in our continued study of the book of Proverbs, we come to a strong warning from Solomon that is intended to instill a fear in our hearts that will protect us from sin and keep us from destroying our lives. At some level, we all know what it is to be afraid of catastrophic events, catastrophes, or tragedies occurring in our lives. But most of the time as we imagine such tragedies that if you're like me, we think of them as something that would happen to us unexpectedly rather than the tragedy that would result from not heeding a warning. You're probably more afraid of something happening to you as you drive unexpectedly than you are afraid that you may drive through a warning sign and off the side of a cliff. But the warnings of scripture concern issues that left unchecked left unchecked, left unmanaged, left undealt with, can lead to our own ruin. In the complex makeup that is your theology of the Christian life, do you have a category for the fear of tragedy that could be brought on by your own sin? In your theology, in how you walk with the Lord, in your relationship, in your striving, in your walking, in obedience, and, and yearning for the day of Christ, and all that that contains, do you have a category in there, in your thoughts, in your devotional life, in your understanding of how Christ is at work in your life? Do you have a category for fear, a good fear, a healthy fear, a God-honoring fear of sin? Sin that could well up from within you and result in the destruction of your life. We should all have a healthy fear of the weakness of our flesh and a healthy fear of our capacity to sin. And the scriptures provide warnings that are intended to cultivate that healthy fear. We are warned against hardening our hearts. We're warned about the deceitfulness of sin. We're warned about bitterness. We're warned about attempting to justify ourselves with works. We're warned about turning from simple devotion to Christ. And there are countless other warnings. The Apostle Peter says that we should fear the enemy of our soul as we would a savage, insatiable lion that wants to devour us. And the alertness and watchfulness that is called for in response to that reality and in response to his warning is not some external source that we're looking around for, but a close attention to our hearts because the roaring lion that Peter refers to, the roaring lion's greatest ally is our flesh. Do you recognize the potency of unchecked sin in your life and the ruinous consequences that can come due to a rejection of wisdom? That's the idea that's before us tonight in Proverbs chapter six. That's the primary thrust of the verses that we're gonna study tonight. The consequences, the devastating, ruinous consequences of ignoring wisdom and being caught by sin 
and in particular, sin that destroys. We're in Proverbs chapter six, and we're gonna be looking at verses 20 through 35. So if you would follow along while I read, Proverbs six, verses 20 through 35. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals, and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied though you give many gifts. This is a very sobering passage. A sobering passage that should arrest our attention and as a warning from the Lord push us toward an earnest pursuit of holiness. I believe that the tone of these verses is fearful. The presentation, the portrayal from Solomon of the devastation of sin is gripping. We are warned of the ruinous consequences of sin and and as a result, we, we should be moved by fear of those consequences away from the sin that entices us and toward a Christ enabled pursuit of wise living. The simple message from Solomon to his son in these verses is this, be afraid of infidelity. Be afraid of infidelity. The most immediate application of this passage is the sin of adultery. In context, Solomon is talking to his son, as you've heard throughout our study of Proverbs. And again, we have the address that starts this section, my son, observe these commandments, observe our teaching. So he's addressing a young man and he's warning him against the sin of taking another man's wife. But this is equally applicable to a woman that would find herself enticed by a married man. Outside of that immediate application, I would say there are also implications here that we'll see for all sexual sin. Sexual morality of any kind stems from the very same heart issues and the fleshly desires that can result in the consequences that are portrayed in these verses. This should cause us to look with concern about what could befall us if our hearts are given over to illicit sexual desire. And there's also a broad application for all, a warning that confronts us with these devastating effects of abandoning wisdom. It's a warning that I think rightly apprehended should result in us having this humble fear and trembling and ever-present spiritual humility that says, but for the grace of God, there go I. The idea that we need to be constantly on guard against the sin that's portrayed in these verses and warned by the consequences that Solomon lays out. Our study of these 16 verses will be organized around four reasons to fear infidelity. Four reasons to fear infidelity. And the first reason comes to us in verses 20 through 24, and that is because infidelity is contrary to wisdom. Because infidelity is contrary to wisdom. Verses 20 and 21 begin with the the familiar refrain, 
of the father to his son. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And then the call to bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Again, the son is told, observe, keep, do not neglect, permanently affix the commandments, the instruction of wisdom to your life. We are reminded so constantly in Proverbs with every uh, few passages, it seems, of this reality that you can't be wise if the commandments and instruction of Scripture are not kept in your heart. We're confronted again with what we've said from the outset of our study that Proverbs is intended to make us wise enough to know that we aren't wise enough. The father is always reminding his son of that and by extension, we are being reminded of that again. We need the commandments. We need the teaching. We should not turn from them. We need to bind them to our hearts. We need to know more. We need to be taught. We need to have our minds filled with the instruction of wisdom. And we must have God's word as a permanent adornment for our lives or we will not have wisdom. Just as a reminder throughout our study, we've defined wisdom as that ability to make moral or ethical decisions that please God in any given situation. Heart knowledge, to take the right course of action in the countless decisions we make in our lives. Wisdom is revealed in how we relate to God and how we relate to others in relationships. For God's people, living wisely means doing the right things because we're thinking and believing rightly. And as Proverbs 1.7 says, we're motivated by a fear of the Lord, which is the foundation of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. The book of Proverbs constantly asks us, will you choose God's will or your own way of thinking and doing? Will you choose inspired, sufficient, authoritative wisdom or your own intuition? And tonight those questions are applied in the realm of sexual sin. Verses 22 and 23 go on to describe the benefits of wisdom's instruction in the lives of those who have it bound to their hearts. When you walk about, they will guide you. The they here is the commandments, the teaching from father and mother, which we then by extension in context would take out to all of the wisdom instruction that we have in Proverbs and certainly that principle applies to all of scripture. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and teaching is light and reproves for discipline are the way of life. God is so kind. He, he doesn't simply tell us, you must obey my commandments. You must not forsake them. He, he explains the benefits. He gives us the reason why it's so critical that we have these things as a part of our life. Here, there's this vivid, rich echo of Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, where it talks about teaching as you walk, teaching as you lie down, teaching as you walk by the way, instructing the children. And now Solomon, picking up on that, is saying, these commandments I have given you are going to accompany you here when you walk, when you sleep, when you're awake. It's a comprehensive picture of life. God's word provides guidance and direction as you navigate life's path. Security and protection as you rest from life's activities. Sure counsel and instruction as you start each day. Maybe flipping that on the negative kind of helps emphasize the contrast between a life dependent on God's wisdom and a life reliant on fallen intuition. With intuition alone, you walk life's path ultimately aimlessly. You will lie down, you will sleep, but without security, vulnerable and exposed. You awake, needing advice, restless, but finding no sure counselor. Sure-footedness in your life comes from having wisdom as your constant companion. And the promise here from Solomon as a reminder to the son is, look, these commandments that you're to keep that are to be bound to your heart are beneficial. They're good. They provide what you need. Verse 23 probably reminds you of Psalm 119, 105. This, this illustration of the commands of the Father being portrayed as a lamp or a light that expose the paths that are to be followed. What a word picture, right? It's so vivid that the, the word is a, is a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path. We all know the uncertainty of darkness. Just this morning, I was walk, waking up early, not wanting to turn on any lights, groping aimlessly, trying to dodge the kitchen table, feeling along the walls, your shoulders hit stuff. 
And that was still with some light from the outside with the snow. Flip on the light, all of a sudden everything is seen. You're no longer in the same danger. There's wonderful relief when light shines in darkness. And that word picture says that's what the commands of the Father here, that's what wisdom, that's what scripture does for us. And keeping the instruction of wisdom close by, our steps on the path of life are illumined. We can find our footing. He goes on, the corrections, the reproofs of discipline, the corrections and discipline that come from wisdom act like guardrails, keeping us from veering off course. Without wisdom, our attempts at walking life's path will be nothing more than aimless grasping for support as we stumble to find our footing in darkness. Solomon says we need these commandments. We need them with us for guidance, for security, for counsel. He also equates wisdom and the instructions and the reproofs he, he says they're the way of life, the end of verse 23. And this should get our attention. There, there, there's really no more comprehensive terminology that can be used. Your, your whole existence is wrapped up in keeping these things. You need them. It, this isn't an aspect of your life. It's the whole thing. Your way of life comprehensively is affected by your wisdom or your lack thereof. Wisdom's not an option. It is our very life. Similarly, Moses told the people of Israel that the word of God he commanded them, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's no idle word, he told the people. It is your very life. And then he told them that word that is their life would be the means by which they would prolong their days in the promised land. They needed God's commandments. And here, similarly, we are told we need the commandment, the instruction, the counsel, of wisdom, guidance, security, counsel, light in darkness. And this explanation of these blessings prior to getting to the command of what to avoid and what consequences are come, they're intended really to stir our heart, to recognize we need these things and to say, wow, the kindness of God who's provided them for us, who gives us security. We don't have to go searching for it, wondering where it is. We don't have to, to worry anxiously about what we're to do in life, how we're to walk, he's given that to us in his word, with his wisdom. The reality of these benefits is a call to the son, a call to us to abandon self-willed pursuits of intuition and what is falsely called wisdom. Abandon them. They will leave you blindly groping in the dark. Understanding what God's word provides and the necessity of it for our lives should motivate a blood earnest pursuit of it. Your life depends on it. My life depends on it. Solomon knew his son was going to go out. He was going to face countless situations in which he would need wisdom to navigate what was coming at him. And we need it as well. As we come to verse 24, there's a very specific application in this passage for which the Father is saying, we need this wisdom. Verse 24, the, all of the, the proceeding, the commandments, the teaching, those things that will give guidance and security and counsel and the light and the reproves and guidance, all of them are for this, verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Verse 24 moves our passage from a general application of the benefits of wisdom, the necessity of wisdom, the requirement to constantly walk in wisdom for your benefit to a very specific application. The instructions of mom and dad here that are to light the son's path are intended to guard him from the silver-tongued adulteress. She is called the evil woman or the foreign or strange woman. And what is primarily conveyed in these titles is she is a seductress that is living outside the commandments of wisdom. She is evil or bad as opposed to righteous. And she is foreign or strange in the sense that she is operating outside of or foreign to the standard for God's people. And the instruction of wisdom is intended to keep the son from her attempts to snare him into infidelity. 
Now, chapter 7 more vividly describes her tactics, her speech, the ways of the smooth-tongued evil woman, and so we don't need to spend much time here. But the fact that she's called the, the, the smooth tongue is mentioned in verse 24 emphasizes that flattery and enticement mark her. Shouldn't be confused here with innocent words of godly encouragement that can be exchanged between the sexes. Speech that's intended to build up in God's church, in God's community. But this is speech intended to seduce, intended to plant seeds of intrigue. These are words that are a trap and that will tempt the heart of the one that the adulteress is attempting to seduce. Don't miss the connection here between the general and specific. I mean, it's so important because this could be applied so many other areas. We're gonna focus on this one area, but Solomon takes the picture and says, you need wisdom, and this is what it provides and all these things, and then gives an immediate application, and the connection is clear. You need light to the path so that you don't misstep in the darkness and fall prey to the adulteress. Now, the specific lesson begins in verse 25. And this is really the only imperative in the rest of the passage. And after this imperative, the rest of the verses describe the awful consequences that will come as a result of falling prey to this sin and the consequences that are intended to instill a fear into those who are hearing so that they will steer clear of infidelity. Verses 25 and 26, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Here we find the second reason to fear infidelity, and that is because infidelity is a threat to your life. Infidelity is a threat to your life. This warning of wisdom is first aimed at the source of sexual sin, the desires of the heart. The heart is the source of sin. That is why Proverbs chapter 4.23 says it is to be guarded above all else. Remember, that verse isn't about keeping everything out. It's about watching your heart, maintaining your heart, because from it flow springs of life. Also, that is where, as Jesus makes clear, sin comes from. We're to guard our hearts so that the sin that is in us is not manifest, it doesn't come into full fruition, giving birth to death, as James says. James tells us that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This command does not allow us to set this passage aside for application only for those who are walking close to the line of infidelity. Solomon says, this is about the desires that are in your heart. Do not desire the adulteress in your heart. All sexual sin, whether you are married or unmarried, including sexual sin that is only in your mind, is prohibited by verse 25. The heart is in view. There can be no rationalizing of illicit desire that's in our hearts. Any notion that we can toy with desire that we may never act upon is a lie from the adversary. Any sexual desire outside of marriage is contrary to the will of God and is to be dealt with severely at the heart level. Wisdom says guard your heart. Don't desire the adulteress. Don't desire the adulterer. Don't desire what you can't have. Kill it there. Don't wait. Guard your heart for from it flow springs of life. Solomon goes on in the second line of verse 25 to warn against the adulteress's advances. Her slippery speech is gonna be paired with knowing looks. It's the intent of capturing him with her eyelids, flirtatious glances intended to entrap him. The son is to be on guard against her tactics for sure, but again, notice that this comes after the first offense against her enticing looks, which is the heart. We can't hear that enough. He doesn't merely say, don't fall prey to her eyelids. He says that after, he says, don't desire her in your heart. Check it there first. 
The battle is won or lost there. The battle is won or lost in the heart. Giving in to her physical advances would reveal that he had first lost inside. He had first lost at the heart level before then being captured by her knowing glances. Verse 26 then gives an explanation of why it is so important to address sexual sin in the heart. And that's because sexual sin is a sin that brings grave consequences. The adulteress or adulterer is a threat to your very life. Now these two lines are very hard to translate and that's evidenced by the fact that they're translated even differently in the NASB and the ESV. The NASB says, for on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. The ESV reads this, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a a precious life. It's difficult, commentators and grammarians and, and Hebrew experts disagree on what's in view. The, regardless of the way that it's ultimately translated, the sense of Solomon's argument is that the consequences of adultery are severe. In both translations, the point of the verse is that the adulteress hunts the precious life. The married man's wife who is sinning in this way or on the prowl, so to speak, is after your life. Now, the comparison that he gives here is not an instruction that's intended to convey that prostitution is not a big deal, okay? So no matter what translation you use, he's not saying, ah, oh, prostitution's not a big deal, but adultery, that's a really big deal, all right? That would be contrary to the teaching of Scripture, even contrary to the Proverbs that are here with us in, in context. Proverbs shows that spending time with harlots is wicked. It's a mark of foolishness. But the emphasis here is on the severe consequence of adultery. He says it's more severe. That is his argument. The emphasis is on that the accompanying sin with another man's wife, sin with someone else's spouse, is more severe than even the sin of relationship with a prostitute. So the argument of verse 25, 26 goes something like this, I believe. Do not desire the man's wife in your heart. There are consequences for spending time with a harlot but how much more for taking another man's wife? She is after your most valuable possession, your very life. That's the idea. You should fear infidelity as you would a murderer or any other threat to your existence. That's how serious this is. Words of wisdom are shown in verse 23 to be the way of life and in stark contrast, the adulteress is after the son's life. Fear infidelity because it is a threat to your life. Now from here, this threat is gonna be described more vividly and the warning escalates and the focus is on the consequences of infidelity. And mainly the consequences here are external consequences. Consequences in life's circumstances. That is the intent of the warning. The father and mother and their commandments are trying to paint a picture of circumstances that are awful as a warning sign saying, don't go this way. It will ruin your life. These are an invitation for us and by extension to consider the devastation that would occur in your life if you succumb to an adulterous relationship. I believe we're supposed to read this text, hear these consequences, and consider how awful the devastation would be in our lives if we ran after this sin. That's what he's inducing the son to do. Consider these consequences. Be afraid. It's bad. Verses 27 through 29. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. The third reason to fear infidelity is that infidelity brings certain punishment. Certain punishment. The consequences for infidelity are inevitable. That's the message. The phrase, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned, consists of divine wisdom. Solomon uses an absurd and obvious word picture to illustrate the teaching of ultimately in verse 29, and that is whoever touches her will not go unpunished. 
He says, if you do this, you will be punished. You will not get away unscathed or untouched. The first picture in verse 27 is of somebody scooping up hot embers from a fire and attempting to carry them. It's that absurd. It's that obvious. It's not possible to carry burning embers, hot coals, without having your clothing consumed. And so it's not possible to engage in adultery without penalty. That's the argument. The second picture also involves fire. This time, instead of carrying the hot coals, the man is walking on them. And this isn't intended to make us think, well, what about people that walk across hot coals at the circus? The point is, if you walk on hot coals, you're going to get burned. That is what Solomon is saying. There aren't any exceptions. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. As certain as no one can carry fire without their clothes being consumed, as certain as you cannot step on hot coals with your bare feet without them being burned, you cannot commit infidelity without being consumed, without being punished. The absurdity is intended to make us picture it. What what if you saw somebody walk over to a fire and attempt to lift out the embers with their bare hands? You would think that is unbelievably stupid. And that's actually the picture you're supposed to have of somebody who would walk after another person's spouse. The consequences are inevitable. This is stupid. As stupid as it is to walk over to a fire and attempt to carry it in your lap. Fire is a powerful illustration here. It evokes the picture of danger, of burning desire, of something that is difficult to control. Later in the text, it's going to be used to speak of burning jealousy, the burning rage of the offended husband? Do you fear sexual sin as you would fear the flames of carrying a fire in your lap? That's the question. Are you attempting to play with something that would consume you? How many of us would choose any course of action if we knew certainly that it would result in our home and all that we possess being consumed in a raging inferno? That's, the, that's what he's saying. That's the choice. You can choose infidelity and a certain destruction of your life, or you can choose the path of wisdom and not be burned. The wise man, the wise woman cultivates a healthy fear of infidelity because the punishments of unfaithfulness are inevitable. That's the point of those verses. They are inevitable and they are severe. The fourth reason to fear infidelity comes from verses 30 through 35. And the emphasis here is on the duration of the consequences. So we've had the, the, the fact that it's a threat to life. The consequences of infidelity are inevitable. They are certain. And now the focus shifts to the fact that the consequences will not end. They're unceasing. The duration of the penalty is never ending. The consequences of infidelity are unceasing. And the picture here is of an insurmountable debt, a certificate of debt that in this life you will never be able to repay. That's the picture that Solomon uses. So the fourth reason to fear infidelity is because infidelity costs more than you could ever afford. Infidelity costs more than you could ever afford. Verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Woods and Wounds and disgrace he will find. And his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. Overall, the argument that begins in verse 30 is a comparison. A comparison between a thief and the adulterer. But the thief is not an illustration of the adulterer. 
Solomon is not picturing the thief stealing because he's hungry and some sort of a euphemism for the adulterer who's taking something that's not his to satisfy a need or a craving. That's not what's in view. Instead, the thief is used to demonstrate the incalculable price of adultery. In verse 30, he begins by by wanting us to consider the case of a guilty thief. Solomon says, in general, what, what is society's attitude toward a thief that is stealing because he needs to eat. And he implies that in general, the attitude is gonna be understanding. It's understood. The thief isn't despised that he stole. It's understood he needed to steal to eat. Now, we're going to see he's still going to be punished. But it's understood why he sinned in that way. That's that's kind of the, the tone of the argument. Generally, there's a measure of understanding. People aren't surprised if this thief who has nothing and is famished is gonna, is gonna steal. So they're not gonna have contempt for him in the same way that they would for what comes later, which is the adulterer, who will be seen as contemptible by society. But even in this case, Solomon says, even in the case of the thief who isn't despised for his crime, there's still repayment and it's steep He says, when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. So he has to make restitution of all that he has. So even though he's not despised, even though in some sense the crime is understood because of his circumstances, he still has to make full restitution. He still has to give everything he has to pay the penalty for the crime. And this is in contrast to the adulterer who will be despised, who will be shown in these following verses will find contempt from society. And the argument is this, if the thief whose crime was understood must make full restitution, how much more will the adulterer whose crime is despised have to endure? That's the idea, a never ending cost that can never actually fully be paid. It's a bleak picture. Verse 32, it's so plain. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Infidelity is an act of self-destruction. Infidelity will ruin your life. Verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find. It will bring physical pain. Potentially here is wounds inflicted by the offended husband. And here comes the contempt. His reproach will not be blotted out. It will bring shame, humiliation. And Solomon says the disgrace that is unending. Reproach that cannot be erased. The reproach that accompanies this infidelity in society won't be wiped away. Now, this is not teaching that God will not forgive. That's not what's in view here, but it is teaching that forgiveness may be impossible to find in the offended spouse and that the offender should expect to have his life reproached for as long as he lives. Again, this is talking about the external circumstances, the consequences of the sin. Think of David. David is always the example here because David found forgiveness in the Lord. But man, did David pay a costly price for his sin. The Lord himself told David that his, the, the consequences would, would endure. His family was ravaged by sin and his sons. The sword never left his house. David paid the consequences for his sexual sin in his life, even though he found forgiveness from the Lord. That's what's in view here. The consequences, the reproach will be unceasing. Verse 34 turns the attention to the, to the offended husband. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. The offended husband is pictured as being consumed with the fire of jealousy, and as a result will not show mercy to the offender. There will be no leniency. The husband wants vindication. The son here should expect, if he imagines this sin, that all avenues of retribution will be pursued by the man whose wife he took. 
And he goes on in verse 35, and this is where the argument rounds out from what was started with the thief. The jealous, offended husband will not accept any form of repayment. He will not accept any ransom. No ransom payment in a court of law, no restitution amount will be high enough for the offended husband to accept. Unlike the thief who will make restitution, there is ultimately no final payment of restitution that can be given by the adulterer. There's a climax here, and this is the insurmountable debt. The picture is that, the, that infidelity costs more than could ever be afforded. No ransom payment will be accepted, and he wouldn't even be, be satisfied if bribes are given, additional amounts beyond what may be seen as restitution or a proper restitution amount. The offended husband, nothing can buy him off. There's no amount of legal ransom that can be offered. There's no additional number of bribes that will satisfy his wrath. The adulterer has a certificate of debt that will never be canceled. That's the idea. So the thief who's not despised and still has to make restitution, the adulterer whose sin is despised, and the restitution cost is too high for him to ever repay. It's unceasing. Now, clarification is important here in the Proverbs because you, you may be thinking people seem to get away with this all the time. People seem to get away. Infidelity is almost a, a part of culture and society the way that it's portrayed. Isn't the, is this always the case? Don't sometimes people get away with it? And we have to remember, Proverbs are presenting general truths without qualification for every specific circumstance that we can imagine. But this is a portrayal in God's wisdom of what's normal and what should be expected. The fact that we may know of individuals who, who this didn't come to fruition for or individuals out in society that seemingly are getting away with this should not cause us to question the severity of what's portrayed. We shouldn't think, well, eh, it's kind of maybe exaggerative fear tactics. That's not the point. It is supposed to instill fear but because it's legitimate, because wisdom says this is what should be expected. In general, the principle of life when considering infidelity is that you will ruin your life. You will destroy your life. Those who get away with it apart from these consequences are an exception, not the rule. Proverbs address the rule. Remember that. This doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions, but Proverbs presents a true picture of life. And this is a vivid portrayal of destruction, of the tragedy that will come certainly from committing adultery. And even if, even if the immediate consequences as described here are not realized, there are eternal consequences. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. If you sow to sexual infidelity, there will eventually be consequences. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we're gonna come back to verse 11 in a minute, but not yet. There are consequences for infidelity. Paul says adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Solomon says infidelity will ruin your life. I don't know that I'll ever forget the, the impact that some words of Kent Hughes made just about the severity of sexual sin. He was sharing how he had a staff and they would be at staff meeting and that he tried to make it his habit to go around to each of the men on his staff who were married and ask them directly if any of them were involved in an illicit relationship within their congregation or if any of them were harboring a, an emotional or a physical crush or some sort of affection for somebody who was not their spouse. And I'll never forget, he said after that, 
that he would pray and that he would ask the Lord to kill any of those men who may be lying because the consequences of sexual sin are so devastating for the life of the church and so devastating for men in the ministry. It made a powerful, powerful impact. Sexual sin is dangerous. It will ruin your life. It will ruin your ministry. It can cause ripples in a church that take years to recover from. Part of wisdom's guidance, security, and counsel comes in the form of warnings. Warnings, we need God's warnings. Are we wise enough to know that we aren't wise enough and so we heed the warnings of God's word? We have said that a mark of wisdom is teachability. And one way that teachability manifests itself is in our response to the warnings of scripture. How do you respond to the warnings of scripture? Proverbs 6 reveals that there is a long-term persistent penalty for what amounts to a very brief enjoyment of pleasure. And the temptation for us often, and even as I began to study this, is to think of them out there, the world that's out there, a sensual culture that celebrates sexual sin, that glorifies infidelity, but this message is for us. In God's providence, this message is for Mission Road Bible Church. And the next time we come to Proverbs, a similar theme is going to be our focus. How can we respond to this warning? First and most directly, this text shouts. This text screams at anyone in this body who is walking in or toward the path of destruction that is infidelity. Are you dabbling with the temptation that is pictured here? Do you have a crush on someone who's married? Do you find that you attempt to put yourself in their path, wanting their attention? This text, through this text, Christ is warning our church, putting a huge warning sign in front of us that says, stop, danger, your life will be destroyed. Turn from this path. Turn from the certain destruction. Be brutally honest with your heart. That's the warning. Be brutally honest with your heart. Consider the picture of devastation in these verses and with the Lord's enablement, flee lustful passions. This text also speaks to those of us who are engaged in other forms of sexual sin. We said at the beginning, the same desire that bears the fruit of infidelity fuels the clicks on the illicit content on your phone or computer. Taking in images that are sexually immoral are not safe, that's not allowable, that's not a, an okay form of sexual fulfillment because it isn't the infidelity pictured here. It's the same root desire in the heart. And the devastation and ruin that's described by Solomon here should arrest anyone's attention with regard to sexual sin because as you've heard Rick say and as he heard men before him say, when someone falls into infidelity, when someone falls into adultery, often they haven't fallen far. The idea is this, very rarely does someone who has cultivated purity through the grace-enabled fight against their passions wakes up one day and decides to run straight into an adulterous relationship. That's very rarely how it works. It is not usually one large fall into sin. It is the culmination of countless smaller falls. And so an application of this text is take sexual sin seriously. It's deadly serious. The consequences of sexual sin fully borne out are what we read in Proverbs 6. Just because it doesn't involve anyone else yet doesn't mean it's safe. Doesn't mean that it's okay. Do not desire the evil woman. Do not desire the adulterous man in your heart. Guard your heart. Finally, this text provides a warning for all of just the seriousness of sin and the consequences that come. This is one of those texts that tells us in wisdom, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. 
Hear the warnings of Scripture. This is a call for all of God's people to cultivate a humble recognition of personal weakness. The songs that we sang, even tonight, where we proclaim the security we have in Christ, the sweetness of knowing that he's there for us, that he will pull us and push us along. God's warning passages are one of the means that Christ uses to push and pull. It's one of the means he uses to keep us dwelling securely where we need to be in our relationship with him. God uses these passages to direct and steer our hearts on the path of wisdom. And he uses other believers, as we heard this morning, to come alongside and warn us as well. It is good to fear things that could harm us. It is good to be afraid of the consequences that could come from unchecked sin. All of these responses, all of our response, whether you are on the verge of infidelity or it's never entered your mind and you just want to respond in humility and say, I want to be aware of sin. I want to be aware of sin in my heart. All of those are predicated on the fact that we can come to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace and mercy and forgiveness and the strength to battle our sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, after, I'm gonna read 9 and 10 again anyways because that's the, the, the real weight of these verses. Again, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Empty morality is no way to respond to a text such as this. You have no power in your own to fight sexual sin. You need Christ. And we can be certain from what it says right here that no matter the severity of sin, no matter even the devastation that we have experienced because of sin, inwardly we can be cleansed. Inwardly we can be washed. Inwardly we can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. We must always remember that reality as we consider the warnings that God gives us. Warning passages are not contrary. They're not contrary to the grace of free and full forgiveness that we have in Christ. Don't ever think that they are. Don't ever think that it's two sides of our Bible. Warnings over here that are just make you try harder and empty morality. And then over here we get to bask in the sweetness of grace in Christ. No, no, no. The warnings are a grace. The warnings are because of the free forgiveness that you have in Christ, and they're intended to keep you close to him. As we end tonight, just, I, just, I wanna go into the Lord in prayer. I wanna thank him for his gracious warning and ask him to guide our steps as we head out into our weeks, recognizing the seriousness of sin, recognizing our weakness, but also recognizing the grace that he provides for us to endure.